Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Christopher Enoch Abeda was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado on November 28, 1985. His parents, Gil and Bernice, split up when he was an infant after it was discovered that Gil was having an affair. On July 15, 1986, Gil returned home to spend the night with his family and maybe to reconcile with Bernice. The next morning, Gil and Bernice woke up to a shocking discovery. Sometime between 12.30 and 6 a.m., seven-month-old Christopher had been kidnapped. He was taken from his crib during the night while his parents slept just feet away. As they began searching, they noticed their garage door opener was missing, the basement window was open, and the front door was unlocked. The only clue left behind was a paper napkin found lying in the driveway. Um, this is um, where we lived in 1985, 3311 um, Ashford Circle, where Christopher was taken. It was a corner home. Um, Christopher's uh, slept in that bedroom right there, up on the, the top. Initially, his parents were suspects since they had been separated for some time, and that was the first evening that Gil had stayed back at home. His family said that they had received hang-up phone calls for about six months before Christopher was kidnapped. Surprisingly, the call stopped once he vanished, but strangely, started up again about seven months later. Christopher's sister believes their father's ex-lover, Emma, who allegedly has a history of break-ins, kidnapped her brother. Um, Christopher's kidnapper, there were four cars parked out in front of the house. Um, I believe three were in the driveway and one was on the street. And so Christopher's kidnapper came up this way and we believe that she entered the front door. Um, although there is speculation that she could have gone through a basement window, but my family believes that she entered the front door. There's a series of steps here that she had to go up. Um, in 1985, there was no screen door on the front here. She entered the house. And this is the entranceway, and this is the stairwell that had to be um, had to go up. There were no lights on in in the hallway, so the intruder most likely had to know to go up these stairs. There was one bathroom that door that she had to pass, and you can see there's three bedrooms doors at the end of the hallway. The bedroom to the right was my sister's bedroom. This bedroom here was my bedroom, straight ahead. And right next door, just a foot away, was my parents' bedroom. My parents believe that the, they remember leaving the door open that night. So the kidnapper walked into, here, into the room, 
And Christopher's crib was right here where this armoire was. Exactly right here. So there was a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps to get to the crib. My parents' bedroom sat in this corner right here. Or their bed, excuse me. They had a water bed. And their water bed sat right here at the doorway. And it went, it was a it was a king size water bed. It went right to here to here, about right here. So again, the kidnapper walked into the bedroom, took approximately seven steps, picked my brother up from his crib, and walked seven steps out, down a hallway, down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps. And again, there was no screen door here, and out the front. If you were to time how long, the door was left open, so it was not closed when she left the home. While the police have not named Emma as a suspect in this case, the family believes she should be looked into. She allegedly stalked Christopher's mother before and after Christopher's kidnapping, and also missed work right after his disappearance. She has an alleged history of stalking and breaking into ex-boyfriends' homes, stabbing beds, leaving butcher knives in their doors, and making constant phone calls. She also allegedly called both of Christopher's grandparents and even showed up at the grandmother's home asking for photos of the family. Many believe it's no coincidence that Christopher was kidnapped on the one night that Gil stayed at the house. Once the Abetas became aware the police were not following up on leads, they opened up their own toll-free number. They also hired a private investigator, but it was very expensive, and eventually the funds ran out. At one point, Bernice decided to call Emma and ask if she would meet with her, and she agreed. They had no idea that Emma called the police and told them Bernice contacted her and she was very afraid. Detective Michael Ruggieri, who was with the Colorado Springs Police Department, went to Emma's home and set up a taping device. When Bernice showed up at Emma's house, she had no idea their conversation was being recorded. In 2009, it was confirmed that Emma had not been investigated as a suspect. However, per public court records from 2015, Detective Mike Montez stated the woman is a person of interest. Also, in 2015, Christopher's sister interfered with Emma's employment by sending emails to her boss and Facebook posts. This led to Emma suing Christopher's sister for $150,000. Bernice searched for her son until she died of cancer in 2017. The family believes he is still alive and that his guardian family has no clue he was kidnapped decades earlier. Before Bernice's death, she made a video for Christopher. My whole mission right now is to talk to whoever's out there. There's people that know. There's family members. There's people that are out there in the community that might have known something, and they're covering up and hiding. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. But my kids aren't ready for me to go. And I don't want them to have to carry on looking for their brother. I would love to have an end to this so that I know my kids aren't going to have to carry this. 
His father, Gil, died of a heart attack in 2020. Sadly, over the years, Colorado Springs police have destroyed most of the case evidence and have given up on finding Christopher. A $200,000 reward has been offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of his abductor. The family runs a Facebook page titled Christopher Abeda, and it's believed that Emma reads everything posted to the page and has Facebook accounts to run interference. If alive today, Christopher would be 37 years old and likely not know his true identity. In February 2019, three DNA samples were received from people who believed they might be Christopher, but the results revealed that none of the samples were a match. As of 2023, Christopher has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Margaret K. Elena Turner was born to parents Robbie and Rosa Calhoun on April 22, 1995. At the age of 27, K. Elena lived in Beaumont, Texas, and allegedly suffered from bipolar disorder and depression. On the evening of March 9, 2023, K. Elena was staying with her friend Brittany in Sealsby, Texas. Brittany had left for work that morning, and sometime during the day, for unknown reasons, Kaylena had left the house and could be seen walking around. However, when she tried to get back inside, she was unable to and tried knocking, but there was no one else home. This was strange considering she had the code to the house and there was multiple other ways to get in. It was clear that Kaylena was having some sort of mental episode. She then began walking to neighboring houses and knocking on their doors. At some point, Kay Elena got in her car and left. Her loved ones believe she was struggling with a recent medication change of Zoloft and Ritalin and had not slept in at least three days. They have since learned those two medications were likely not a good combination for her. Before being prescribed the medications, Kay Elena was living in New York City during the COVID pandemic and had developed PTSD after having to commute to and from Times Square. Two weeks earlier, her doctor had upped her dosage. Once Brittany learned that Kay Elena was not at home, she began texting her, but there was no response. However, she was able to speak with Kay Elena via FaceTime. She then strangely told Brittany that she was getting groceries and needed to go. A few hours later, she called Brittany, but she had poor cell phone reception, making it hard to understand what she was saying. Brittany thought she was possibly asking for gas money and texted her asking if she could hear her and if she needed anything. Hours later, at 8.51 p.m., she texted Brittany the words, no, and help. Brittany frantically tried contacting Kaylena, and at 9.35 p.m., she answered the phone and told Brittany she was fine and she just needed to drive for a bit. Brittany questioned her about the text message, but Kaylena said she meant she did not need help and insisted she was fine. Brittany then contacted Kaylena's boyfriend, and he began to search areas in Beaumont that Kaylena would frequently visit in hopes of finding her and her vehicle. It was later determined from a friend in Austin, Texas, that Kaylena had contacted him around 10 p.m. and asked for directions because she did not have enough service to load her GPS and her phone only had 3% battery left. She stated that she did not know where she was or what day it was and asked for directions to his home in Austin. She seemed very disoriented and possibly believed she was already in Austin even though she was still a couple of hours away. 
After this, Kay Elena continued down Highway 290, but got tired at some point and attempted to stop. She pulled over at Hockley, Texas, and entered the Bower Landing community. She was then captured on a doorbell camera, following a young man into his driveway, asking if she could take a nap there because she was very tired. The underage young man told Kay Elena he would have to ask his parents. When his parents came outside, Kay Elena was already pulling out of the driveway. She then drove around Bower Hills for what could have been several hours and pulled into multiple driveways along the way, attempting to find a place to park and sleep. Another gentleman chased her out of his driveway, and after this, she finally gave up and parked in a driveway on Saigon Trail around 3.30 a.m. and approached the home of a person named Kelsey. Kelsey was able to provide multiple videos from her doorbell camera. In these videos, Kay Elena, possibly believing she had made it to Austin and was at her friend's home, continued trying to get the person to answer the door. Her behavior in these videos shows how confused and disoriented she was at this point. Kelsey contacted authorities to come to check on Kay Elena, and the police called her back an hour later. She then emailed the video footage to a Harris County Sheriff's Office at 4.30 a.m. The video footage shows Kay Elena acting erratically in front of Kelsey's home from 3.37 a.m. to 3.50 a.m. After this, she is seen getting back in her car and driving away. Kay Elena left Bower Hills and got back on Highway 290, but this time she was heading eastbound back toward Houston, but somehow ended up in Holly Creek Trails in the 18,000 block of Country Hills in Tomball, Texas, where a homeowner found her in their driveway at about 6 a.m. When he found her, she was asleep in her vehicle, and those closest to her said she was known to be a heavy sleeper, even in her normal state. However, the homeowner, unaware of this, became concerned when Kay Elena would not wake up and wouldn't respond to their attempts to ask her to leave the driveway, so they called the HOA president, who contacted the constable directly. They also called others in the tight-knit community to stand by as witnesses. When Kay Elena finally woke up, she was apparently scared from the commotion outside her car and attempted to drive out of the driveway, but her car was blocked from behind, so she decided to drive through the homeowner's front yard and into the street. However, she also couldn't exit that way either, as one of the neighbor's vehicles was blocking her. When a police officer finally arrived, they told her to get out of the car, but she refused, so the officer busted out her car window. She then drove about half a mile into the woods before her car was bogged down by the mud and stopped. From there, she exited the vehicle and began running on foot. She left her shoes close to her car and was last seen wearing a long pink dress. Officers chased her on foot as she drove through two pastures and multiple fences into the woods behind the subdivision. She left behind all her belongings and dropped her phone not too far from her car as she fled. Somehow, Kay Elena made her way to Spring Creek and crossed. Once she crossed Spring Creek into Montgomery County, she ran through another person's pasture and yard and made her way to Decker Prairie Rose Hill Road. Harris County deployed a helicopter to search the woods to gain her heat signature, but the helicopter ran out of fuel and they were unsuccessful in locating her. Numerous searches have been done, including by the Southeast Texas Navy, who covered a 5 to 10 mile radius from where she was last seen. Canines have also searched all over the area, and the only thing found was a footprint next to a log in Spring Creek. 
Texas EquiSearch became involved and searched the wooded area extensively where she was last seen and determined that she made it to Decker Prairie where she either got a ride or continued on foot. Sadly, and for reasons that do not fully make sense to her family, Harris County decided to cancel the missing person report and instead pressed charges against Kay Elena. After the felony charges were filed, EquiSearch could no longer help. As of today, she still has an outstanding warrant for evading a motor vehicle and aggravated assault on a peace officer. Her parents are begging for assistance to get the charges dropped so they can continue using Texas EquiSearch. As of March 23, 2023, even though her charges remain, Kay Elena has officially been listed by the police as a missing person. Her parents do not believe she's on the run. They believe she's in danger and in need of help, but as of July 2023, she remains missing and this case remains unsolved. Debbie Ann Gonzalez was born on August 7, 1973 and lived in Federal Way, Washington. At the age of 12, Debbie became unhappy with her mother's strict ways and decided to run away from home. She then began staying with different friends over the next two years. Debbie's mother, Dorina Gonzalez, said her daughter had a learning disability and was hard to understand at times. After her father died in 1980, she saw a counselor a few times but remained a troubled child. Debbie hated living with her mother so much that she even told a caseworker that she had been abused, but Dorina claims this was not true. She had even dropped out of school in the seventh grade after years of poor grades. Debbie had also been drinking and doing drugs and eventually met a 17-year-old boy who she stayed with for almost two months. On May 11, 1987, Debbie was arrested for stealing a pair of shoes from a Ben Franklin store. A warrant was issued for her arrest after she failed to appear in court for her July 23rd arraignment. Four days before her 14th birthday, on August 3, 1987, Debbie went to her mother and said she wanted to quit drugs and alcohol and get her life together. Dorina agreed to help, but sadly would never see her daughter alive again. Debbie was last seen on August 10th by a friend who took her shopping for her birthday. As her family and friends anxiously awaited for Debbie to show back up, they couldn't shake the feeling that something was seriously wrong. Sadly, Debbie would never come home. About six weeks later, on September 28, detectives knocked on Dorina's door and asked if Debbie had been wearing an ankle bracelet with a little charm the last time she left. She knew at that moment her daughter was dead. Debbie's body was found in the 20,400 block of Auburn Black Diamond Road. That particular area in the suburbs of Seattle was known as a party location for local teenagers and people who lived in the area, including Debbie. Found near Debbie was a machete, which detectives say is not necessarily the murder weapon, but they are hoping it could jog someone's memory in the case. The detective believes Debbie's killer was familiar with the patch of woods where she was found. The investigation also revealed that Debbie had sex near the time of her death and may have been attending a party at the location where her body was recovered. However, as of 2023, Debbie's killer has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Tanya Merle was born on June 20, 1976, to parents Jack and Vivian in Alberta, Canada. Her family described her as a very happy kid who loved to dance and play with her Barbie dolls. 
At 7.30 a.m. on January 20, 1983, Tanya's aunt, Vera Stortz, was dropped off at the Merle home so she could babysit the children for the day. Tanya's mother, Vivian, worked at a bakery, and her father, Jack, worked as a carpenter. Around 11 a.m., Tanya left Grovner Elementary School and headed home for lunch. She only lived a block away at 10,426 145th Street. However, she would never make it. She was supposed to walk with her brother John, but when he walked outside the school, his sister was nowhere to be found. After other kids informed him that she went to a friend's house for lunch, he walked home alone. When he arrived at 11.20 a.m., he told his aunt about Tanya going to a friend's house, so Vera went to check but found no one home. She then called Vivian and informed her of the situation. At first, Vivian thought maybe Tanya had gone to a friend's house, but her intuition told her otherwise. Vivian sped home and found Vera on the streets looking and calling out for Tanya. Their father, Jack, also rushed home, feeling just like Vivian that something was seriously wrong. When they couldn't find Tanya, they went to the school but found she hadn't returned from lunch. At this point, her family notified the police, and hundreds of law enforcement, friends, family, and even volunteers began a massive search for her. However, they would sadly find no trace of Tanya. Tanya's parents were known for their love of alcohol, marijuana, and motorcycles, so after she went missing, rumors began circulating that since Jack was a biker, he possibly owed money to a local drug dealer in town. Even if he owed a debt, it most likely had nothing to do with Tanya's disappearance. It's also of note that while Jack had a love for motorcycles, he was not part of any biker gangs. Strangely, after Tanya went missing, their family dog did as well, but foul play is not suspected. Tanya's parents were also victims of an extortion attempt by a man who took advantage of her disappearance. The man was eventually arrested and convicted of the crime. Authorities received multiple tips about the case, and in the summer of 2008, one tip led them to a hole in a basement about 20 blocks from where the family lived in 1983. They excavated the hole, but nothing was found. Thirty years later, a former school friend of Tanya's came forward and said that Tanya told her she was going to a nearby 7-Eleven for lunch. That store was in the opposite direction of the Merle home. The woman said she last saw Tanya walking alone in the direction of 144th Street toward Stony Plain Road. Sadly, it was too hard for the family to remain in Alberta, and they eventually moved to Kelowna, British Columbia. In the 1990s, due to the stress of Tanya's disappearance, Jack and Vivian divorced. They both eventually developed a drug addiction and have since passed away, Vivian in 2011 and Jack in 2005. Then in 2015, 37-year-old John was sadly found dead in a halfway house apartment he shared with other parolees. Before they passed, Tanya's parents set up the Tanya Merle Missing Children Society with a sole focus on missing children. However, that society has since been dissolved. As of July 2023, Tanya has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Some of you may remember the tragic case of Dean and Tina Klaus, who were murdered in Houston in late 1980. After over four decades of remaining unidentified, they were given their names back in 2021 through the use of genetic genealogy. 
and their daughter, Holly, who went missing with them for decades, was found alive and well in 2022. Their families spent decades longing for answers and were thankful to finally have some closure. FHD Forensics helped find Holly Marie, and much of that success relied on the help and generous donations, big and small, from individuals in our true crime community. FHD Forensics and the Klaus, Casasanta, and Lynn families did not stop when Holly was found. They are now focusing on bringing closure to three Florida cold cases in Dean and Tina's home county. The Dean and Tina Klaus Memorial Fund at Genealogy for Justice, FHD Forensic Sister Funding Organization, is working with their local sheriff's office to bring closure to three other families. This is Dean and Tina's loved ones' way of turning their own pain into purpose. The first case, which is what inspired the three-case collaboration, is one that began in 1972 when the body of a murdered male victim was found less than a mile east of Indian Lake Road and 2.9 miles north of US-92 near Daytona Beach, Florida. This is the same county that Dean and Tina grew up in. The FHD team calls the John Doe Johnny since he's so young, and they have several older John Does in their queue right now. Johnny was discovered floating in a pond in a wooded area near Indian Lake Road in Volusia County by two motorcyclists. Also found nearby were several beer cans, a denim jacket, and a Schwinn brand bicycle. The remains were partially clothed, and his trousers were pulled off and barely attached to one leg. A newspaper article at the time described the murder as sexually motivated, and at the time, it was believed that his pubic hair had been shaved. Keep that in mind as the story continues. An autopsy found that the victim had been stabbed numerous times less than a week earlier. However, there was no evidence of a struggle or foul play at the discovery site, so investigators theorized that he was perhaps killed elsewhere and disposed of at the pond. The Schwinn bike was found to match the description of one stolen on May 3rd from an address in New Smyrna Beach, about 20 miles from where Johnny was found. After his remains were not claimed, he became known as Volusia County John Doe and was laid to rest in Cedar Hill Cemetery in Daytona Beach, Florida on May 22, 1972. At the time of his discovery, over five decades ago, he was initially believed to have been about 20 years old, but in 2013, his remains were exhumed and using new testing advancements, it was determined that he was actually only about 11 to 13 years old. This means that he would have been born around the same year as Dean Klaus. A facial reconstruction was created to demonstrate what he may have looked like before his life was cut tragically short. While investigators and even the FBI were trying to match him to other missing men, they were looking for an adult, not a child. Therefore, it's possible that the medical examiner only thought his pubic hair had been shaved, but knowing now that he was much younger, he was likely simply prepubescent. There has been speculation online that Florida serial killer John Rodney McRae, who was active during the 1950s to 1980s, could have been involved. McRae's M.O. consisted of sexually assaulting and then murdering young boys around the same age as Johnny. Despite having murdered an eight-year-old boy, McRae was paroled in early 1972. Although McRae was never tried for most of the murders he suspected of committing, both of his proven victims were stabbed or cut with knives. The bodies of his other potential victims have never been recovered. 
However, it appears that McRae didn't move to Florida until after Johnny's murder. Unfortunately, they have not been able to retrieve DNA from Johnny's remains due to the state it was found in. FHD Forensics is collaborating with the top ancient DNA extraction lab in the country to try and give this young boy his name back. The team has refused to give up even after five failed attempts to extract his DNA from bones, teeth, and hair. But as you know, the testing is costly, so the next step needs your help. Donation links can be found in the description if you choose to help, and remember that all donations are tax-deductible. Just this month, two extracts of Johnny's DNA have been sent to Quality Control. This is where they examine what's been extracted to see how viable the sample is. However, as of July 2023, Johnny remains unidentified and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.